Hi, and welcome to Fashion Talks, the podcast about observing the world through the lens of fashion. And I'm your host, Donna Bishop. And I'm joined today by Ashley Froze, branding and trademark lawyer. Ashley is an agent who is recognized by the Law Society of Upper Canada as a certified specialist in trademark law. With over 10 years experience practicing branding and fashion law, Ashley provides a deep understanding of brand protection strategies. She is recognized by the World Trademark Review as one of the top 1,000 trademark lawyers in the world. She is a mentor with the Canadian Arts and Fashion Awards, Toronto Fashion incubator and advisor with the Ryerson Fashion Zone and co-chair of Fashion Group International Toronto Chapter. She sits on the Brand Strategy Council of the Canadian Marketing Association, is an executive member of the Ontario Bar Association's Media and Entertainment Section, and a committee member with the Intellectual Property Institute of Canada, author of published academic publications on fashion law, and also guest speaker on fashion law across North America. Ashley Froze. Hello. Fancy pants. Thanks so much for being here today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, sincerely. Before we get into our dive of our topic today, which is counterfeiting conspiracy and pi- or conspiracy, some people dun, might, dun, dun. <laughs> some people might think it's conspiracy. Could be counterfeiting piracy and knockoffs. I'm going to start with my first question, which is: Can you please share a moment when fashion changed your life, when it had a real impact on you? Uh, So the context of me growing up, I grew up in England, and I went to very traditional British boarding school. You think of Harry Potter, but without the magic. And uh, in the British uh, system, education system, it's uniforms all the time, and they really try and take away your individuality. You're not allowed to have a duvet cover that's your own until you've gotten certain rights and privileges, for example. See, I was foreshadowing with my slip-on conspiracy. I know. (laughs) So for me, I think that I realized that fashion, you could really assert your individuality over through fashion and uh, for me it was this dope outfit it was I was eight years old and it was a black turtleneck dress with black and white checkered layered skirt it was the 80s so it had um, fluorescent uh, suspender belts that were pink and green and yellow and for me I thought it was dope as hell and I, I thought love I it super fly and it was the first time that I really realized that in a very structured place where they take away your individuality, it was a way for self-expression. may not have been the cutest. I'm sure I would cringe if I saw it. But Amen. back then, own it. It was dope. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Well, and that that individuality is actually a pretty good segue into our discussion today around intellectual property. Yes. And all of these legal elements that intertwine within the landscape of fashion. So let's start off. Like, what is is IP? What is intellectual property? So basically, intellectual property, and a lot of people mix these up, and I want to get a patent and a trademark and a copyright. So let's just start everyone with the same foundation. Let's build a foundation. So basically, intellectual property, it's a system of laws that takes an intangible asset, your creativity, and through legislative uh, avenues, provides a period of exclusivity, which means that it takes your creativity and turns it into a property of type, intellectual property. Uh, Because that one entity is able to claim exclusivity because of these pieces of legislation, they're able to turn that creativity into a revenue generator, licensing, for example. So... um, 
I believe that fashion is very much rooted in creativity, and intellectual property laws are a system of laws that specifically protect that creativity. Now, because you're granting one company or one individual essentially a monopoly in the marketplace, right. there's a lot of checks and balances. So the government has created a system whereby they will look to see, is there functionality? Is there distinctiveness? Is there originality? Is there an overall negative impact to the industry if you're granting one entity exclusivity over the other one? So let's walk through, if you don't mind. Yes, no, please, because there's a lot happening there. So let's kind right. of parse it out right. with examples. Okay, Perfect. and I'll try and avoid legalese because who likes to hear a lawyer sort of espouse that? <laughs> it's innate. I can't I can't help myself. So patents. Patents, everyone talks about patents. It's the sexiest. Um, everyone ideally wants to get a patent. And the reason why it protects rights over the inventions. The patent owner has the right to exclude others from making, using, or selling the invention. And because of that, they can assign it out, they can license out, they can monetize it for themselves. And so because of that, and it's exclusivity over generally 20 years, period. Okay. So that's pretty hefty. If you're that's the only one that can manufacture a certain kind of product or have a patent over a certain kind of manufacturing process, that's pretty interesting, not only for the patent owner, but investors, for example, too. For sure, for sure. Um, here's some examples applying it to the fashion industry, wearable technology. That's a big thing, right? Uh, okay, okay. 3D printing, for example, big things. Um, manufacturing processes, maybe acid wash jeans back in the day, um, high-performance sports apparel and footwear, uh, high-functioning material, absorbent, iron-free, stain-resistant. So there's a lot of different ways that you can apply patents. Um, and because it's granted such a... Uh, high stake value, if you grant it, there's certain thresholds. So it has to be non-obvious, has to be novel, and it has to be original. Gotcha. And is it expensive to get a patent? Um, and it's utilitarian, just so you know. There's okay. a functionality issue to it. It's probably the most expensive of the IP, mm -hmm. um, but what you're getting will hopefully pay off. Because if you're the only one that can manufacture... Because it's um, an asset. It's an asset. Exactly. All of intellectual property is an asset and it's a codified system to enable you to claim that as an asset that's proprietary owned by you. Gotcha. So then we do trademarks and you've heard me do a lot of speaking gigs on trademarks and I, I love trademarks. I think it's very interesting, very powerful. And I truly believe that we live in a branded world. Wake up this morning and you go through your routine every morning before you've left the house. You wake up on your Sealy mattress. You brush your teeth with Colgate toothpaste with, you know, X kind of toothbrush. And you consistently go back to those same products over and over again. And that's the power of the trademark. There's a million different deodorants, but you're going to that one kind of deodorant because that trademark signifies a certain kind of quality and experience and consistency that you have. So I believe that trademarks are the foundation of the brand. I believe that we live in a saturated marketplace where there's a ton of different products out there that function the same, but it's the brand and the hype that you're chasing after. So I believe that every point of interaction that you have with consumer or a potential consumer is an opportunity to create a very distinctive experience that is uh, distinctive of you, of your company. 
And that's the whole function of a trademark. So you can have your standard trademarks, your Lululemon, your Ritzia, your Canada Goose, your Apple logo, for example. But the beauty of trademarks and the strength of it is that there's a lot of different permutations of trademarks that perhaps law is not intuitive. Unless you've studied this, perhaps you wouldn't know. So there's non-traditional trademarks, which... I think is fascinating. And they can go quite deep into different areas of your branding experience. And they can be in the fashion world, a very useful tool in protecting the distinctive elements on your apparel, on the accessories, on the footwear. So okay, just I'm going to stop you right there. Just yeah. I want to make sure I'm clear about something. Yes. So is a brand name or the way the brand, like it, like the Nike swoosh, yeah, is that trademark. a trademark? Correct. And is just it, do it, just trademark. do it, trademark. Exactly. So it has to do with also like the font, how the name, like Lululemon, the way it's all like lowercase, all yep. of that is yep. trademark. Exactly. Gotcha. Yes. Okay. But Continue, then, please. No, no problem. So then it also can go into the shaping of the products. It can go into button configurations, distinctive stitching features. So here's a couple of examples. Christian Louboutin, red bottom shoes. And we'll get into that later on. Okay. If you see a pair of jeans and you see an orange or red little rectangular tag sticking out of the side of the jean stitch, mm-hmm. you're pretty sure that's Levi's, Levi's. jeans. Gotcha. Um, if you see certain kinds of plaid scarves, for example, or lining within a jacket, Burberry. Um, if you see a certain kind of hang tag on a purse, pretty sure that, it, you know, if you see the design of it, you think, oh, that's coach immediately. Uh, back in the day, remember Rock and Republic was was high sure, was yeah. in. Remember those two R's that went back to back on the back of the jeans? Yeah, you knew when you're walking down the street and you see a chick wearing those shoes or those jeans, you know where she bought them, um, how much, what the quality is, etc. Um, and even another example of uh, of trademark, non traditional trademark, is you go to the Abercrombie and Fitch stores, yeah, and you see that uh, when you do a checkout and they've got that big moose. Above. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that configuration, it's consistent through all of their retail stores. That's also a trademark. Gotcha. Cool, right? Gotcha. You can there. even go down to sound marks, for example. Like if you go to the movie and you hear a lion roar, you know that it's a movie that's produced by MGM, Metro Gotcha. Golden the Ryan. Law and Order, dun, dun, dun. Yeah, gotcha. Exactly. So that's non traditional trademarks. Then there's other subsets of a trademark called distinguishing guises. Okay. And that's a distinctive shaping of the product or the packaging of the product. So we see this a lot with distinctive perfume bottles and wine bottles. We've seen it with Hermes Birkin bag, for example. Um, you can see it with one of the one of the examples I always use is if there's and it's not to do with fashion, but it's consumer product oriented, is chocolate syrup. Okay. Sold in a Nesquik bunny bottle. Who do the bunny? Uh, who 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 is the bunny appealing to? Children, and now they've carved out the packaging to directly relate to the children. But then they use it as distinguishing guys, uh, and so they now okay. have the monopoly over that kind of packaging. Very powerful. So I think I don't know. I nerd out and I get very excited, especially about non-traditional trademark protection. So if we bring it back to the world of fashion, yes, um, 
can you give an example of, of a brand or a product that is doing that kind of layering of trademarks really well? Like I know when we spoke previously, we talked a little bit about Vans. Yeah, the shoes. Yeah, they've done a good job. How, with that. What? How? How do you? How do you see them doing a good job? Like, can you parse that out? For so, us? like, what are the various elements? Right. So they've got that uh, checkered motif, right, which is very distinctive. They've got protection over some of the shaping of their products. They've got protection over the tread. When you see people walking in sand or in mud or whatever, you'll see the vans as part of it. And so it's very much about layering a comprehensive portfolio. Gotcha. So even right. like the way, like I was admiring my vans the other day based right. on our conversation. I was yeah. looking at even like the way the stitching goes around the yeah. toe, the way it makes certain patterns. They've right. really started to use that um, detail, their sort of stripey thing down the side right. of their shoes you see all the time now, and the shape of the toe of the shoe. Exactly. So all of that is layers of trademark and IP. Yes, exactly. So then going on, another thing that's interesting is certification marks. It's covered by the Trademarks Act, um, but it's not really a trademark. It's kind of related to trademarks. So certification mark, it provides more of an opportunity. The application would be to textile industries. If they want to certify that a certain kind of textile has certain kind of criteria that it meets or consistency. So you look at the wool mark, for example. So you can only use that wool mark if it has, um, if the actual fabric itself meets certain criteria. So that's the trademarks world. And I do think that it is quite a robust kind of protection in itself. Then we go to copyright. So we've got Patent Act, we've got the Trademarks Act, and these are legislative gotcha. uh, types of protection. The Copyright Act as well. Copyright Act is a it's a peculiar kind of legislation, and there's a lot of caveats to okay. it, a lot of loops and holes. And ultimately, the goal of the Copyright Act was really to protect the artist and help them commercialize their artistic creativity. It's almost like the government took a paternalistic view towards designers gotcha. or artists. So there's different types of, of copyrighted works. And I would argue that fashion designs, although fashion designs is not explicitly protected under the Copyright Act, it could be seen as falling under the scope of artistic works, okay. I would say. Now, originality is a key factor in determining whether or not copyright protection exists. So in the fashion world, that might be a little bit challenging, but it's definitely a lower threshold than it would be with patents. Gotcha. So the problem with the Copyright Act in applying it to the fashion industry is that there's limitations. Remember how we talked about the checks and balances mm-hmm, and you mm-hmm. give the monopoly and the exclusivity, but it can't impede. So the problem with the Copyright Act is that it varies, the piece of legislation very specifically limits the scope of protection for useful articles. And this goes into the debate of, is there a functionality to clothes? Is it just to clothe a naked body? Or is there artistic integrity that goes with it? And this is part of the push-pull of, is fashion art or not? That that informs so many discussions around the industry. Right, which we'll get into for sure. So under this limitation, they say that if an article is produced more than 50 times, mass market clothing, right? it is not, although copyright attaches to that 
artistic work. It is not an infringement if it's uh, uh, copied. Gotcha. But then there's a an exception to that useful article exception where it says that that non-infringement, like it's very complicated, but the non-infringement exception does not apply where the artistic work is a trademark uh, or a label or material that is woven or knitted into a suitable wearing apparel. Okay, so can we break that down <laughs> into an example of what's in my closet? <laughs> Fine. Yeah. So this is the interesting thing, is that if you can tart, start to weave, right, all of these different IP. So right. you've got copyright protection, right? But then you've got this useful article exemption. But then they're saying that the exemption doesn't apply if it's a trademark. And now you can use non-traditional trademark to protect the distinctive elements. So... You can interplay the both, and so that you're starting to get protection by, I'm not going to say manipulating, mm -hmm. but understanding the comprehensiveness and how they sort of play into each other. Cool. So let's pretend that I am, uh, we're just going to use Lululemon as an example, because I sure. think of them as creating a category in Fine. the fashion landscape with, with the way yoga wear took off. Yeah. Um, do they have then, or would you guess, because I know you don't know them intimately, but, you know, after there was Lululemon, there were all kinds of other yoga wear companies right. that sprung up. So right. is it because there's nothing proprietary enough about the design of, like, a pant such that they could trademark it? Or maybe there are trademarks within something like athletic wear because it might be the way a bra is constructed that right. has a proprietary element to it, which would allow for patents. Right. So I can't comment on the specifics of, course. of Lululemon. Um, but an example would be, you know, how they always said that Lululemon pants in the beginning were the, the wonder bra for butts. Yeah. <laughs> so it might be that there's something very specifically engineered in the fabric that facilitates that lift, lift that coveted lift. Gotcha. Um, I do know that they have started to protect, you know, that's that sort of swirly... It's, it's so hard to... Yeah, it's almost like on your torso, there's a certain right. outline right. with panels. Right, and it's consistent yeah. stitching. So that's protected as trademark as well. Gotcha. So it's all about this layering. Now, the Copyright Act, it, it is challenging, but it is an avenue for sure. And so it's all about creating this portfolio and, and amassing a portfolio so that you're protecting each distinctive element and you're having more and more to rely on to fight off recounting fight off counterfeiting understood understood right. do you know when this started within the fashion industry like do you have a sense of when a particular designer or somebody said aha we should be protecting like if I make corsets a certain way I want to make sure I'm sure. the only one doing it what's the historical so I mean intellectual property protection has been around a long time trademark protection I think they even uh started to I think the root of it started even with cattle branding back in the day, like 1800s kind yeah. of deal. So it's always been around. Um, I think that we can point to Char Charles Frederick Worth, who yeah. was sort of the the father of haute couture um, back in the 1800s. And he started his own line, House of Worth. So I think that we can sort of 
point to that. Yeah, he would he would sew labels of his signature into the right. clothing he right. made. Right. So I think he's been heralded with starting the namesake brand. Right. Which, which would be an example of trademarking. Exactly. Gotcha. The Chanel's and the Tom Ford's. That's what we, what we see today. Yeah. I do have to say the namesake brand poses its own issues as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, in the early, early 1900s, we see patent protection for bras. Ah, uh, okay. Right. So the functionality of it to also lift up and contain. Yeah. Um, you, you see, start to see different iterations of patent applications for bras. Because there's engineering around. There's a functionality to it. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Right. So the fashion industry is one that is fraught with, like, because because there are these protections means that right. people have been trying to And copy. there's two more types of protection. Oh, we haven't even stopped. We okay. haven't even stopped. <laughs> Sorry. Lay it on me. Fine. Two more. I'll okay. go quick on it. The other one is industrial design. Okay. So that is, it's a probably underutilized type of intellectual property protection. And again, it goes well in conjunction with starting to get trademark protection as well. So with that, you're looking at the shape, configuration, pattern, or ornamentation that is aesthetically appealing on a utilitarian article. Gotcha. Right. So that's something that you could play that with distinguishing guys, for example. Um, there's ways to go about it. Those four, patents, trademarks, copyright, and, and industrial design, legislative. There's another type of IP that is people think about kind of but not really, and that's trade secrets. So okay. in all of these four, you're disclosing publicly. There's a trade-off. You tell us what you've done, and we'll give you the protection but it's all about trying to move society forward, move the industry forward. So there's a trade-off. Mm-hmm. But with trade secrets, it's about keeping your competitive advantage a secret. And it's contractual. And so if you have, for example, Zara, who has a huge manufacturing distribution capability, right? right? And they have a huge competitive advantage. They come out with, what, 30 seasons a year? It's or crazy. Like yeah. it's bananas. So- what I would assume is that they have cre- created a whole system to keep that competitive advantage on how they manufacture, how they distribute, et cetera, as a trade secret that would be contractually enforced against their employers and their third-party suppliers. Gotcha. It's kind of like a non-disclosure agreement of yeah. secrecy amongst... Right. So it right. could also be if I am, if I find a new textile blend based on something that I have found a blend for right. myself. Is that something that would also fall under it, it trade could secret? Be. It's it all could? It, it's all dependent. It's all strategy. Gotcha. Right. The problem is that if you're putting it out there for public consumption, who's to stop someone from taking the product that you've sold that's out in the public, reverse engineering it, doing analysis and then coming up with their own. Understood. And if you haven't secured patent protection, then that's what they can do. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Okay, so this is all like there's a lot to consider. Like certainly from the from the designer side of things, yeah. there's a lot to consider with all of this. And I, I guess it's important for consumer awareness as well to understand. Oh well, you know when I am buying a a knockoff of something, there are all the there's a whole world. Yeah, that is being participated in, I, and we're going to get to that in a little bit. But 
before we kind of jump into that side of things, is this is the whole idea of IP protection something that is generally is generally accepted as a priority in the fashion world, or are there combating um, opinions on whether copying is a good thing? I, I think it depends. I, th- you know, and I've I've been practicing for ten years, and I've been a mentor with a number of you know significant incubators. Um, throughout Toronto. And I do believe that law is not intuitive, mm-hmm. right? And I do believe that sometimes there's a left brain and a right brain, and some are very creative. I mean, I can't draw worth anything. And some, you know, are, are more academically inclined. I think that if if law is not intuitive, it's our responsibility as a lawyer to help educate. And, you know, I've been public speaking and writing articles for eight years now trying to get the word out and to provide and guide um, designers. Mm -hmm. Some designers, I find, take a more defeatist attitude. Well, it's going to happen anyways. What's the point? Some veer more towards um, artistic creativity, and that's the impetus. So if I'm starting to advise them, hey, if you do this kind of stitching or this button configuration and it's consistent, you might be able to get trademark protection. Sometimes I've had the the kickback of, well, that's bastardizing the creative process. Right. Well, and there is, there is a, like I came across a really interesting book called The Knockoff Economy, How Innovation Spurs Innovation by right. Cal. I'm going to totally mess up their <laughs> names. Rustialia and Christopher Sprigman. And what I thought was interesting about that is, you know, they have a philosophy that you need the act of copying, and I'm synthesizing simplistically, but you need to copy in order to spur innovation because that's kind of like what makes the cycle of creativity move. How do you respond to that philosophy? I mean, I believe that true creativity, I believe that intellectual property protection was created to help the true creative. That's the whole point of it. And there is this philosophy and there's counterfeiting and there's fashion design piracy. So when we talk about fashion design piracy, and it's a slow movement in Canada, I wrote, you know. What's the difference between the two? So counterfeiting, you're taking um, a Nike sweater and you're calling it Nike. It's very clearly a knockoff. Gotcha. The fashion design piracy, you're taking the creative elements, the distinctive creative elements of a piece of clothing and instead of, um, let's say it's the Lululemon where you have that swirl or something like, yeah. you know, it's more distinctive elements of the actual clothing. And instead of calling it Lululemon or the counterfeit version, Lululime, yeah, whatever, gotcha. um, you're then taking it. So it basically looks very identical, the article of clothing, but you're calling it Donna. Gotcha. So there's not confusion in the marketplace about the actual brand because it's completely rebranded. But it's still something that's distinctive to one line in terms of how the article of clothing looks, but you're ripping that aspect off. And so I, I, I label that fashion design piracy, and that's why I try to delve into the non-traditional trademark protection, because you can get into the distinctive features. Are there milestone cases around these sorts of issues? It's, it's challenging in Canada. There's not... So, so many. But you also have to look at who are the companies that are enforcing these rights. Well, if we Large look global, broader, are there, right. are, there, are there cases where one company has sued another over something to do with 
piracy or counterfeiting or knockoff. Right. Well, I mean, obviously, we've got the Christian Louboutin East Saint Laurent case. And that came that was fascinating because a lot of times cases settle. And Can you give, settle? what's the background of this case? Totally. Uh, okay, so this happened in New York probably about six years ago, I would say. And Yves Saint Laurent came out with yellow shoes with yellow soles, blue shoes, blue soles, green shoes, green shoes, or soles, right. red shoes, red soles. And they started selling them. Christian Louboutin, they had secured trademark registration for the color red on the bottom of women's shoes. And they said, this is exclusivity. Remember, we talked about non-traditional trademark. So they had secured that trademark registration. They then went after Yves Saint Laurent, claiming trademark infringement, et cetera, et cetera. What was interesting is that uh, Yves Saint Laurent came back and said, it's not distinctive to you. Red shoes and red bottom soles, they've been around forever. Imitations is the nearest form of flattery, and you are a part of that equation. Okay. So if you look at, um, you know, Imperial China, those little red satin shoes. Mm-hmm. If you look at Dorothy clicking her heels with the right, red ruby, red shoes. It's, it's been a part of pop culture, they're saying, Yves Saint Laurent's saying, for, what, thousands of years since yeah. Imperial China? So that was interesting. Um, what ended up happening, and it was fascinating because we able we were able to see all of this evidence that they provided, and you started to see the underbelly of how Christian Louboutin marketed their shoes and the relevance of Sex in the City to getting it out. Like it was, it was fascinating because oftentimes big parties like this they will settle because it's economically advantageous. Right, you, if you just, can avoid going to court, you exactly. do exactly. But they really exposed a lot of their strategy yes. and how they marketed. Oh okay. yeah, so it was very interesting. And then the trial judge, they came back and they basically said, well, you can't protect a color as a trademark. And then they likened it to if Monet had had the um, exclusivity over a certain kind of blue, there never would have been water lilies. Right. Or someone had had exclusivity. Okay. So that was, when you look at the whole function of a trademark, it's to indicate distinctiveness, a source. So I know when I see a woman walking down the street behind her, I know if she's wearing red bottom shoes, how much she paid and how much her feet hurt. Yeah. (laughs) 100%. And I know she's waiting to get into her slippers. Yeah. So it was very interesting that that this judge kind of didn't really account for the whole function of what the red bottom shoe did for Christian Louboutin. And it's interesting because I find that there is a kind of dismissiveness sometimes with fashion industry and fashion law and not an appreciation that it is a robust, viable, dynamic industry. It's a business, multi-billion dollar business, global business. So then uh, it was interesting because Christian Louboutin appealed that. Okay. Uh, So they went to court again. They went to court again. The International Trademarks Association, it's a global association for trademark lawyers I've been a member of for probably the last eight years or so. They intervened and basically said the judge got it wrong on the test of what is uh, what the appropriate tests were. And it was interesting that what ended up happening at the appeal level was that the judge basically threw out the trial judge's decision. Okay. But then they said, well, you know what, we'll give Christian Louboutin exclusivity over the red bottom shoes, but only they scaled it back and they said only if it's with contrasting shoes. So black with red bottom, tan with red bottom, gold with red bottom, 
silver with red bottom. And in that instance, it means that the red with red bottom, which was Yves Saint Laurent's, that was okay. Interesting. Right. And so it's about these checks and balances. And I wonder then if the rationale for that was that the distinctiveness of the red bottom is diluted if it doesn't have a contrasting body. And well, it, it, it could have been on the market research and the evidence that was provided because oh, okay. after I read that, I thought, you know what? I don't think I ever ever seen a red Louboutin shoe. Yeah, no, I, I always think, think of them as black or black tan or, tan. or gold. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's very interesting. It was very cool. I really enjoyed following that case for sure. And has that really been precedent setting in terms of how brands may or may not behave going forward? Or it's just sort of it's a good it's a good precedent in terms of deciding whether you're going to um, take action on. It's a good precedent for New York State uh, because okay. it's all jurisdictional. There's no one universal system of law. And so it could, you know, it might have precedential value perhaps in other countries, but it's not going to be precedent setting. Well, let's talk about jurisdiction for a minute then. So if because this took place in New York, does that mean that the law only pertains to what goes on in 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 New York or even right. the United States? And if they right. wanted to make a black shoe with red bottoms by another company in India, that Christian Labutin would have to like go through the whole legal process again. It's not a global precedent setting case. Correct. Correct. Which is oftentimes why there would be a settlement. And so you have a contractual agreement that you'll deal with this oh, on a global level. I see. And that's why also you'll see cases that will happen in Europe or they'll happen in the States perhaps more so than Canada, because it's the economics of litigation. Where are you going to get more damages? And where is an injunction that you get with a decision going to be more impactful where there's a bigger market? So is that part of the reason why, I mean, you can barely, you know, walk down the street without looking at people's bags and clothes and kind of going, oh, knock off, copy, copy. Is it becoming so prevalent partially because it's so hard to rein it in and, and legislate it. Like you'd have to have cases going on in China and Bangladesh and India and New York and England and Italy. and Right. And so that's one of the issues is that there's no, you can compile all of this intellectual property in this portfolio that we talked about, which has strategic value, but you have to be your own watchdog. Right. And okay. you have to be your own enforcer. I'm of the opinion that when you go to litigation, when you go to court, Truly, the only people that really win are the lawyers because they're making bank on this. Right. I'm more of the mindset of compile a comprehensive intellectual portfolio so that when you have to send a demand letter, that nasty lawyer's letter, mm -hmm. you're as robust as you can be. And it facilitates a greater, greater position for you to negotiate because ultimately companies don't want to be litigating and spending all of their money. That money is is being spent that could be spent on marketing, on investments and right. research and development mm. and bolstering their own companies. So I'm more of the mindset of get a smart strategic business solution to a dispute and use litigation as your last resort. Now, I don't want you to reveal any any confidential information or name names, but have you worked with a client where having those things in place has 
yeah. has has solved a problem, has worked to their advantage? And can you can you share what you can without like revealing secrets? Uh, I like to veer on the side of caution, of course, on that. But yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's interesting and important for. Um, the audience to know that we're not just talking about the big Louis Vuittons that are multi-million and, you know, who cares about that? It's smaller independent Canadian designers as well that they've been struggling for two, three, four years and they're starting to get traction. You know, they're getting picked up by the media or so-and-so has worn their designs during TIFF and they're starting to get traction. And those are the ones that are also getting ripped off. Have you seen success with having this stuff in place? Like, have you been privy to? Yeah. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I've had a designer and she had really, really cute stuff. And a massive uh, retailer, um, was a North American-wide retailer, was selling counterfeit products that was supplied by someone from India. And we were able to get it pulled from the shelves and, you know, sort of, don't ask, don't get. Well, hey, if the counterfeit product's doing well, the unauthorized products, why don't we slip in our clients' products and and you know continue? You can continue with the profitability, but now retailer, but now you have the genuine product. So there's ways to be smart and savvy, right? Um, and, it's only, and get a business solution. And only, it's only through having that kind of right because that, otherwise, that framework, you if would you're have sending the demand letter. Right. And it's, I promise that I, if you don't have the intellectual property portfolio, it's really more vacuous. I promise I, it was proprietary to me versus this is government sanctioned authorization that, that this is proprietary to me. Gotcha. So hopefully all the designers who are listening are now like making crazy notes and, and looking up <laughs> your number online. But if I'm a consumer and I'm listening, yeah, like why do, why do I care? Like why do I care if people are making counterfeit stuff? What do I care if there's a, a Nike, you know, apparel line called Niku that's being made somewhere else? Like what, what, what is there a big picture Totally. That people don't think of. Okay, so first things first, counterfeiting industry is a multi-hundreds of billions of dollar industry globally. So you can take this at at a couple of different levels. I'm always about there's a trickle down and a trickle up effect. And there's also the ecosystem around the designer. So if you're buying counterfeit products, it means you're not buying the authorized products from the designer, which means that you're lessening their profitability, which means that they're maybe unable to pay their fit model, pay their seamstresses, the whole economy that circles around that individual designer. Right. So there's an automatic impact. I think also stealing is stealing. And the whole point of intellectual property is to protect and encourage creativity in the marketplace. And so by purchasing the counterfeit products, you're kind of saying, hey, it's okay. Do you I'm think consumers it. should be fined for knowingly buying counterfeit product? Like if I'm down, I know I'm totally putting you on the hot seat. If I'm down on Canal Street and I buy knowingly a yeah. knockoff designer bag because I know it's it's a knockoff. I mean, that's... You, I know, but well, you go too far, Donna. Yeah. <laughs> but but I will tell you a very interesting case that's happening right now is Louis Vuitton. They're trying to, um, and it's interesting that you say Canal Street, Louis Vuitton back in like 2006, they took the, you know, everyone can go to Canal Street and buy yeah. everything counterfeit. Yeah. What they ended up doing was they they held and they, they were successful in holding the landlord owners 
vicariously liable, meaning that they had responsibility and liability for allowing counterfeiters to sell in their... Interesting. So yeah. they were making them culpable in, exactly. in an illegal act. You with this legal word. I know. I've watched a lot of law and order, mix. you know. <laughs> I do not. Um, and so what's interesting is that Louis Vuitton is now trying to do that in Canada as well. In really? Ontario. Yeah. So they they are trying to make flea market fl- flea market owners uh, they, that they need to pay more attention to vetting right. who it is right. that is selling right. in their and so their place. the statement of claim was issued I don't know like a couple of months ago springtime mm-hmm. maybe and we'll see what happens might settle might not takes years to go through but Louis Vuitton was successful in expanding the scope of responsibility beyond just the counterfeiter to now landlord. Very interesting. Super interesting. Very interesting. So what else, what are some of the other ramifications? Like obviously Fine. there's the, there's the impact on the designer themselves and the the health of their business, but are right. there, are there bigger issues that consumers might not think of? One hundo P. So there's the trickle down and the trickle up. So if you think about the, so the organization of economic cooperation and development, they valued last year that the global economy of counterfeiting was $461 billion. That's a lot. It's a lot of money. Think about how many of these people are going to be doing their taxes, filing their taxes, doing their returns, a lot of cash-based businesses, right? right? So there's the problem with, well, now, how is this going to impact our infrastructure? So in Canada, we rely on tax to feed our health system, our education system, et cetera, et cetera. The more that you're providing the funds to counterfeitings, which may or may not, I don't want to blanket everyone with the same thing, but I think that there's a greater likelihood that perhaps they will not be doing their taxes at a standard that the regular retailer will be doing. So there's that issue. Is there is there a way of knowing whether your country is participating in counterfeiting more than others? Like, is there a way to know where, like, if we sit on a where we sit in the in the marketplace of counterfeiting? Like, is there watch yeah. lists or anything? There, for certainly there are. So there's a couple of organizations. I can. That's a big one. Right. Uh, what is ICANN? ICANN, International Coalition of Counterfeiting Network, I okay. do believe. There's a Canadian version of that. There's the International Trademarks Association. These are all organizations that lawyers and big brands in-house counsel are a part of that come together collectively to deal with counterfeiting. What's interesting also is that the U.S. trade representative, they have, which is a U.S. government agency, they do a list of all of the countries each year and identify it's a watch list. You don't want to deal with this country because of human rights violations. This one is terrorist organization, gotcha. blah, blah, blah. Okay. okay. Canada has always been consistently on this list because we have porous borders for counterfeit products coming from Asia, coming through Canada, and trickling down. Interesting. And the big issue with that, obviously, we've dealt with the ecosystem around the designer. We've dealt with the lost tax revenue, which has real implications for the viability of our public Mm -hmm. services. Then you also have to look at public safety issues. You know, if you look at the manufacturing processes, I don't think that there's going to be a huge um, concern about human rights issues right? in the manufacturing of it. So if you're conscientious about who makes your clothes and what kind of conditions they're working in, you can feel... 
fairly confident that if you're buying a counterfeit There's going to be a global footprint. For gotcha. sure. Uh, I think also that um, it could be, and I'm talking about the big boys kind of counterfeiters, it could right. very much be that they have a plethora of a product range of counterfeiting. There's been counterfeit medicine. There's been counterfeit airplane parts. There, you know, There's actual public safety concerns. So it could be that the profits of your counterfeit purse is now feeding the manufacturing process for other uh, consumer products that will be ingested in food, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And also there's been uh, reports that proceeds and revenues of counterfeit products have gone to mafia organizations, terrorist organizations, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I'm not saying that this happens in every case. Right. But there are studies out there and may not be that hard to suspect. Right. What I find so interesting about this is there's there's the counterfeiting of the big guys and the little guys have such different motivations in many in many ways. Like when you talk about the counterfeiting of the or the copying of the of the Canadian or the independent designer that had a big retailer try and knock them off mm-hmm. um, or was buying. I guess they weren't knocking them off. They were buying um, products of a, product yeah. of a knockoff. Yeah. Um, that is a very different situation and motivated by different things than a company that is making knockoffs of Burberry or Gucci or Louis Vuitton. Why? Beca- no, because the consumer motivation to buy them is different. Like if I'm buying a knockoff Gucci bag, is it because I want you know, I'm going That's to aspirational status. it's aspirational status, yeah. which is, you know, which is part of what makes the counterfeit world right. go round, I think. Right? right. And it reminds me of an episode that I did a few weeks back on the democratization of fashion, where there are other ways to get that hit. Right. But, you know, if I want Gucci, I can now get it through a Gucci collab with maybe H&M. Right. I'm trying to think if they've done Gucci recently. I don't think I don't they have, so. but they're doing Erdem soon. Right. You know what I mean? Like, right. there's a there's an interesting but that's where the, motivation. The brand that is having control over it and the manufacturing. Like they're yeah. they're doing a sub brand and they're doing a licensing collaboration agreement and they have every right to do that because that's their brand. And it's only by having these things in place that they can do a licensing right. collab. Right. Which, again, having your thing, your ducks in a row at the beginning allows yeah. you to exercise but it more properly. What is interesting, and I'll may I shift gears? Shift away. The interviewee turns into the interviewer. <laughs> um, what's interesting, though, and I do find it sometimes a bit frustrating, is that when you have, um, you know, the fashion matriarch of of this industry, Coco Chanel, saying imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. It makes my toes crawl. Right. Angers me. And there's academic theorists in the fashion industry, and I've been reading these articles for a while, and some of them are of the position that counterfeiting or fashion design piracy actually is assists the fashion industry, and it assists the economy of the fashion industry. So if you take your haute couture design that's very exclusive and 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 unattainable and is, you know, fashion, there's a functionality, clothes and naked body, and then there's that aspirational status kind of element that goes with fashion. And as it starts to trickle down from, you know, uh, the haute couture down to the high-end fast fashion down to the high street fast fashion and down to just your basic retailer, they say that, hey, there's no, this is the fashion theorist. This is not my philosophy. Got gotcha. Disclaimer. They say that it's beneficial. 
Because A, there's no real confusion because the haute couture uh, customer is not going to be the same as the fast fashion consumer. So there's no real loss of profit there. Right. And then they also say that as a trickle down of that haute couture, you know, artistic design gets uh, democratized, as you as you will, and goes down to the base level consumer, that it, it's actually an impetus for the haute couture to create the new Ocouture, the new design. And so they say that, A, it inspires creativity because it pe- keeps everyone on their toes. But then they also say that it increases the profitability because we have the season and the trend and right. the new thing all the time. It's creating multiple touch points for profitability, not right. denying one but place. But it's also inha- in, in increasing. It's an impetus for the cycle of the new thing to come out, and it it speeds it up. Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's a theory, right? It's like, a theory. I can, I can see how it would be conjured. Right. But but I think that, I don't know, I think that intellectual property laws have been created to protect and reward, and I think that it flies in the face of that purpose. Ash, this has been a really juicy conversation. And what I'm going to do is if people check out the website, fashiontalks.ca, I'll upload some of the like precedent setting things that we've we've talked about because I think it's you know, Thanks. just it's just the tip of the iceberg, really, it's super in terms cool, right? of, of the impacts of these sorts of things. Um, before we sign off, yes, I have one final question for yes, you. Yes, give it to me. If you could wear one outfit for the rest of your life, what would it be? Well, <laughs> like maybe my pajamas or <laughs> uh, black leather pants, black sweater, billowy kind of sweater, kick-ass heels, wicked power purse. And like a bedazzled gold sort of jewelry line. Love it. With not a knockoff yes, to be seen. No. Ash, thank you so much for the conversation. And My for pleasure. Being here thank today. you. If people want to find out more about you, where can they find you? Uh, you can go to froeslaw.com, F R O E S E law.com, or I'm on Instagram at froze underscore law. Awesome. Thanks so much for being here. You can follow me at This Is Donna B. That's with just the letter B at the end. A big thank you to CAFA, our producing partner with this podcast. You can find out more about the Canadian Arts and Fashion Awards at CAFA Awards. That's C-A-F-A-W-A-R-D-S. Thanks to our wonderful sound engineer, Paolo Fuccioli, and to our production coordinator, Uh, Margarita Brighton. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. If you enjoyed the podcast today, please tell all your friends however way you can. It really helps get the word out there and rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher is a huge help. As I said, you can find out more information about some of the things we talked about on fashiontalks.ca. And if you have an idea for Fashion Talks or you want to give us some feedback, I love hearing from you. You can email me at hello at fashiontalks.ca. Until next time, this is Donna Bishop at Fashion Talks.